just thank for this opportunity to come before you and study your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we open it. Show us what you would have us to see from all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so we're going to continue in chapter 14, which is a continuation of the prophecy against Babylon. And remember, Babylon was being judged because of how harsh they were on Israel and that they were only going to rule for a short time. And this chapter is going to bounce around a lot. It talks about Israel's return to the promised land. Then it'll jump into the millennial kingdom. Then it jumps back to the fall of Satan. And then it, it jumps forward to the, to the uh, punishment for Satan. So there's a lot of bouncing back and forth in this one. And Babylon is used in a more of a spiritualized term because Babylon is the capital, basically, of Satan and his minions. And we've talked about that uh, when uh, Nimrod built his, the Tower of Babel and built Babylon, he established all kinds of, you know, the basis for all the false worship out there. So Babylon is considered to be Satan's city in the scriptures. Uh, so we go forward on this just as Jerusalem is considered God's dwelling place and Babylon is considered Satan's battle. Uh, uh, dwelling place. Isaiah 14, chapter 1. For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will choose Israel and set them on their own land and strangers shall be joined unto them and they shall cleave to the house of Jacob and the people shall, shall take them and bring them to their place and the house of Israel shall possess them in the land that the, of the Lord for servants and the handmaids and they shall take them captive whose captives they were and they shall rule over their oppressors. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall give you rest from your sorrows and from your fears and from hard bondage wherein you were made to serve. That you shall take this... Okay, we'll stop at three for... All right. Israel has been prophesied, is in bondage to Asia, uh, to Assyria. <laughs> Gonna have trouble speaking it, obviously. And Israel is going to go into, ba into captivity to Babylon. That's what Isaiah is telling them. But he also said that the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will yet choose Israel. In other words, God says, I have not totally eliminated them. Okay? And that's something that many Christians in our day and age have to really come to an understanding. Israel has not been eliminated from God's plans. God has great plans for Israel. They've got their land back. They're going to get their temple back. They're going to be the focus of the world's attack during, during the tribulation period. And God has a great plan for them. And here he's saying in verse 1, God will have mercy, not give Jacob what they deserve. Because if he gave them what they deserve, they would cease to exist completely. And Israel has never ceased to exist completely. They were kicked out of their country twice <laughs> and have come back twice. To their, to their country. And God has a plan. He says, I'm going to have mercy on Jacob and I will yet choose Israel. Now, so he's saying, I'm going to bring both, I'm going to bring back the 12 tribes of Israel back to their land. And we're starting to see that happening even in our day. We saw after Babylon, they came back and that during Jesus' day, they, they inhabited the land. Then they were kicked out of it in 70 AD. And they came back in 1948 <laughs> to their land. And they're dwelling there now, and they will dwell there until Jesus returns and sets up the millennial kingdom, his rule. 
And it says, it says, the people shall take them and bring them to their place. The house of Israel shall possess them in the land of, of the Lord of their servants and handmaids. And they shall take them captives who captives they were, and they shall rule over their oppressors. And it says, the people shall take them and bring them back to their place. And most people believe this is talking about Cyrus. And if you remember, Cyrus came 70 years after Israel was taken into captivity. And he brought, he gave the orders for Israel to be returned. And he gave them money and building, building supplies and everything to build Jerusalem and the temple again. And Cyrus was named in the scriptures. And when Daniel realized that it was 70 years that they'd been in captivity and and who should be ruling but Cyrus he showed Cyrus that, that he was in the Bible his name was in there and he says you're the one and he's going you know pointing out to Cyrus that this was written long before his kingdom even existed so we believe that this is what it is and and Israel when they took over that land ruled it they took the captives you know the, and if you re remember in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, they go back and the people in that area try to give them a hard time. And they really gave them a hard time at various points. They attacked them. They made it hard for them to fight. They sent letters back to the king saying, hey, these guys are troublemakers. Look at the history and see how bad, it, you know, how much trouble they caused in the past. And the, Ezra and Nehemiah had to send letters back to them and saying, no, you know, you got to look at the whole story. We were defending ourselves and finally got the king back on their side. <laughs> but uh, if you really want to read an interesting political battle, read Ezra and Nehemiah, because it was a whole political intrigue there as they're trying to build up and take possession of the land and see this whole fulfillment of Isaiah. And now remember, Isaiah is writing before they are going into Babylon, okay, going into captivity. At the moment, he is still long before this captivity as he writes. And he's predicting these things for them, and he's saying this is going to happen. And then we see it happening as, you know, as it goes along. Verse 3 says, It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall give you rest from your sorrows and from your fear and from the hard bondage wherein you were made to serve. And he's saying you're going to get to have rest. And, you know, it, it's very interesting one of God's major themes for his people is rest. Because most people don't know how to rest. You know, they can sleep, they can, they can try to be, be quiet, but just to learn to rest and trust in God is quite a feat. And he says, I'm going to have you rest from all your sorrow and your fear. What happens when we're sorrowful? Usually we're not trusting God. We're letting something else get in our way, and sorrow comes in, and fears come in. And this is something very important for us to understand. Jesus in, it says it through Peter in, in, in the book of Peter is, cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you, or all your fears, all your concerns. Now, that is easier said than done. Now, most people will start casting their fears to God. They'll give it to God, and then as they're walking away from the, in the prayer, they start taking back all, well, God, I can handle this one and this one and this one and this one, and before long, they've taken back everything that they told God to take. And they get to worry and, and have trouble with it. You know, best times in life are the times you're not worrying about it because God's got it in, under control. Now, I am not very good at it. I is just like everybody else. But, you know, I've had times where I just cast them on to God and say, God, they're all yours. And, boy, is that time fun. 
is for as long as it lasts. <laughs> but you know, we, we as human beings walk by sight. We, and God walks by the Spirit, and sometimes he just doesn't work fast enough for us. You know, we want our answers to prayers. We want him to take care of our cares when we hand them to him yesterday. <laughs> okay, not, not, okay, God, I'm giving it to you. And he says, okay, wait and see what I'm going to do. We're going, no, God, you took too long. I'm going to, I'm going to take them back. I'm going to, I have to worry about them. And here he says, I'm going to give you rest. Faith rest in him. You know, in this case, it was the people and their prosperity, but it also means for us. We are to just rest in him. Why can we rest in him? Because Jesus paid the debt of our sins. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And God cares for us. Now, sometimes we think that that care should mean that he's going to make our life perfect with no problems whatsoever. That's not God's way of doing things. He puts us through trials and through hardship so that we can learn trust. And... You know, it's, it's very true that if you want to strengthen yourself, you have to basically cause pain. If you want to strengthen your body, you have to exercise. And if you're going to exercise, it means you have to lift some weight. You have to carry some kind of burden, whether it's running and carrying your body through it, or fast walking, or swimming, or weightlifting, or using the machines to cause pain to your body. You've got to do something that basically is going to cause pain for that growth to happen. God does that with us spiritually as well. Because what happens, you know, if there is no stress on something, it never grows, never gets strong. Uh, heard recently about the biospheres that they were doing experiments in, and they put trees in the biospheres, and the, as the trees grew, they got to a point where they would start breaking in half because they never had any winds and storms to make them get stronger. So when they got too big, their own weight broke them because they did not have the strength they should have developed through the wind and the storms twisting and bending them. And you know, if you think back over your life, isn't it true that that's exactly what God does to us? He puts us in a hard place, teaches us to go forward, and then we grow from that trial and use it to get through the next trial. And it gives us great strength to, that he puts us through. And God says, I want to, you to have rest. Hide in Christ. You know, be, be stuck in, be, be, be in him, hide in him. We, when we went through the Psalms, all of, so many of the Psalms said, he is my strong tower, he is my hiding place, he is my refuge. God wants us to be hidden in him. Now, the world will say, well, you're just using God as a crutch. And I go, yes, I am. Thank you. Now, I'd rather use God as my crutch than what most of what they use as their crutch. You know, let me go try to earn as much money as I can. I'll put my whole life and develop it to earning money, which doesn't do anything in the long run. I'm going to put my whole life into being famous, and everybody will know who I am. And then they find out that that doesn't fill them. OK, God, I'm going to get into alcohol and drugs, and I'm just going to use those as my crutch. Yeah. The world's crutches don't work. You know, so if they want to tell me that I'm using God as a crutch, thank God, yes, I'm, I'll take that accusation because Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. It is easy and it is light. So I'm bound up with Christ. He's the one that carries the weight, and I just walk along beside him. And if we're doing that, we're resting. Faith rest is the best place to be in your life because you're just depending on God and saying, God, where are we going now? 
We wish we could do more of it. Wish I did more of it. I'm getting better at it. But, I, but you know, there's many times when I just say, okay, God, you know, this is exciting, God. I don't know where we're going, but, you know, I'm looking forward to where we're going. Now, sometimes where we're going may not be very fun. Many people who are in the underground church and in communist and Muslim worlds have suffered greatly for their faith. But, you know, their testimony is that they've gotten stronger as well. They've got to see God work and deliver and give them strength in the middle of all the hardships. And, you know, sometimes I think we in America, you know, we have it too easy. We don't really know what it means to suffer for Christ. We're going to find out. It's coming. And we need to be ready to suffer for Christ and just say, God, I'm going to give it all to you. And the unfortunate thing is the European-American gospel of God is, God is going to bless you, and if you're not being blessed, something's wrong with you, is going to fall by the wayside when we go through trials. And God says, I never promised you a nice, easy life. I, I promised you tribulation, which is exactly what Jesus said. They hated me. They're going to hate you. You will fall, you will fall into through temptation and trials and tribulation, and it helps us grow. It really does help grow. It doesn't feel good. We don't like it when we're in the middle of it. But you know, when you look back over your life and you say, wow, that was really hard, but look where I am now because of that. You know, we look at Abraham as he's wandering around the desert, going through all these trials. Where did it lead him? To great, great uh, blessing. We look at Joseph, you know, made, a, made a slave, made a prisoner, and then finally promoted. But he needed all those other things to humble him and make him who God wanted him to be. If it wasn't for all of those humbling experiences, he would not have been the strong man that he was for God later on. And being able to tell his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. We need to be careful when, how we look at things because God says all things work together for good for those who called according to the purpose of God. Everything that comes our way, no matter how bad it looks at the time, is for our good. All right? And we want to keep that in mind. As long as we keep in mind, God, you've got a good plan for me, it makes life a whole lot easier to rest. If all I'm doing is saying, God, you, you don't have good plans for me, and I'm going to fight everything, life is pretty miserable. And this is something that you can find out. If you tense up, if you're going to get a shot from the doctor, to give you a healing and you get all tensed up and everything, it usually hurts a lot more than if you just relax and they give you that shot and pull it back out. But if you get all tensed, it hurts because they're going through very tight, intense muscles. Same thing for us with God. We need to learn just to relax. God, you've got a plan. I want, to want you to support and I just want to relax. And life is easier when you do. I've had those times when I've walked through problems relaxed and you look back and go, wow, that was what well, happened in the last, in the last uh, day, month, year, <laughs> decade, whatever it might be? Other times you're sitting there fighting and being knocked about at every, every wind that comes along. And, you know, so we want to be careful with this and learn to rest. Rest from our sorrows. Rest from our fears. Verse 4. And you shall take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, How, are you, how has the oppressor ceased and the golden city ceased? The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked and the scepter of the rulers. He who smote the people in wrath with continual stroke, he that ruled the nations in anger is persecuted and none hinders. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into singing. 
Yea, the fir trees rejoice in you at you, and the cedar trees of Lebanon, saying, Since you are laid down, no fellow has come to up against us. Hell is from beneath is moved for you to meet you at your coming. It stirs up the dead, even all the chief ones of the earth. It, it hath raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. And they shall say, so speak, and say unto you, Are you become weak as we? Are you become like unto us? Your pomp is brought down to the grave in the noise of your vials, and the worm is spread under them, and the worm covers you. So we look at this, the downfall of Babylon. I'm going to say also, though, I think because I stopped at verse 12, and that talks about the fall of Lucifer. I think he's also referring to the fall of Lucifer here. Because the Babylon did rule a large part of the world, but Lucifer is going to be the target of, of this. And Lucifer is the fallen archangel. He's Satan. Uh, but he says, verse 4, they shall take up this proverb against the king of Babylon, which can either mean Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar, Belshazzar, who later on rules, or can literally be Satan himself. Remember, Babylon is considered the seat and dwelling place of Satan, so we're, we're going to see a transition into Satan. So I believe they're talking about Satan in the, from this point forward for a while. The Lord has broken the staff of the... Oh, how has the oppressor ceased and the golden city ceased? God's going to bring Satan into judgment. Okay? At the end of the tribulation period, Satan is going to be cast into hell for a thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, he's going to be released for one last trial of the people. And then they're going to go to the white throne judgment and, and Lucifer and the demons and everybody who's rejected Jesus Christ will find themselves in the lake of, lake of fire and hell itself will be thrown into the lake of fire for eternity. And here he says, you've been broken. Satan, you've been broken. Jesus started it at the cross when he defeated Satan. Satan took God's plan at the Garden of Eden and took the authority that man was supposed to have over this world. Satan took it. Jesus at the cross paid the debt and took the title deed of the earth back to himself. And because he was man, he was able to take that title deed back to himself. And he possesses this land and will, at the millennial kingdom, he will bind Satan. So there's a great history involved in all of this. God has a plan. And Satan, you know, we, we think Satan has these great powers. We're going to read some interesting things about Satan in this, in this chapter. This is one of the chapters where we learn a lot about the devil and who he is and what he, what he does. But he thinks he has so much power. And it says, you were the oppressor of the nations, and it ceased. The Lord has broken your staff of the wicked and the scepter of the rules. Staffs are, are something you lean on. They're power. And the scepter is the symbol of powers. It says, God is broken. He's broken your power. He's broken the scepter. He who smote the people in wrath with continual stroke, he that ruled the nations in anger, is persecuted and none hinders. Okay, and again, this can go either Nebuchadnezzar or his grandson or, or Lucifer. By the time you get to the destruction of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar is out of the picture. It's his grandson, and his grandson is weak. So I don't really think that this is referring to him because he was already weak at that time. He ruled because his grandfather and his father established a kingdom. And he's the one that in the middle of the attack of the Medo-Persian army, he was having a party with all his generals because he figured his city was so strong it could never be taken. 
and they were taken that night without a battle even being fought because everybody was in a drunken party. <laughs> but he says in here, your staff is broken, your scepter is broken. He who smote the people is persecuted and none hinders. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into singing. And again, I think this is going to the millennial kingdom at this point. All right, because when Babylon fell, the whole earth didn't rejoice. Israel rejoiced, uh, various other people rejoiced, but all they did was replace Babylon with the Medo-Persian Empire. All right, not that much nicer. They were still, still bad guys to, to those who were their enemies. But in the millennial kingdom, Jesus reigns for a thousand years. And it says during that period of time, there, there won't be war, there won't be, there won't be, it says that if a, a man dies at 100 years old, he's going to be considered a child. It, it says that you can, the ox and the lamb, the lamb and the fox, a wolf and the lions will sleep together. Uh, children will play on the whole of the uh, adder and not, and not be hurt. Okay, we get back to an almost Eden-like existence. There's still death, there's still sin, but the, the, Millennial kingdom is as close to the Eden as we can come in a fallen nature. And remember, the ones who are inhabiting Eden, uh, the millennial kingdom, will be Christians who come back with Christ in our glorified bodies where we will not sin because we will have our perfect bodies. And those who made it alive through the tribulation period without taking the mark of the beast. So those people are not necessarily followers of God, they just, for whatever reason, didn't take the mark of the beast, which probably would mean if, that they're following God. Now, over a thousand years, they're going to have children who don't know God, don't know the tribulation period, and how easy and quickly do we forget things? Now, we, all we gotta do is look at our own history in America. Most people in America don't even know our history, and it's no more than 200 years old, and some of what they do understand is totally confused. Now take them back into the uh, Renaissance or the, or the Dark Ages, and you get people that don't know anything about it. Give them, give them the foundations of the church, and people don't understand it. And how quickly we forget our history. And we're going to see in the Millennial Kingdom how quickly their history is forgotten. They're going to forget all the tribulation period because everything's going good. You know, everything's going good, and people have this idea that what is going on has always been going on and never been any different. Okay, when things are good, it's like, well, yeah, we're really good. There's never been, you know, we forget the bad. And then conversely, when everything seems to be going bad, we oftentimes forget the good. Okay, we'll go, well, man, look how bad things are. It's, you know, it's miserable. It's terrible. We're never going to see good. And this is why we keep bringing up Ecclesiastes, everything. There's nothing new under the sun. We go through cycles of obedience and judgment, obedience and blessing, and, and rejection of God and judgment. And those cycles go back and forth. America is entering into a period of judgment. We started in a godly, moral place following mostly Christian beliefs. We have rejected Jesus and, and the morals of God, and we are headed toward judgment. And we, all you got to do is look at all the various examples in the, in the Bible. Every time a nation walks away from God, they got judged. And usually it's Israel we see, but it's, we see it in all the, all the peoples, of the, all the great nations of the world, the empires of the world. 
They walk away from God. They get into unrighteousness and evil. And God judges them, even if they're not his. Okay? Egypt fell when it did this. Uh, Greece fell when it did this. Rome fell when it did this. The Medo-Persian, the, the uh, Assyrians, the Babylon, the Babylonian Empire. None of them were his kingdoms, but when they started getting into utter evil, God judged them. You reap what you sow, and when you want to walk in that kind of lifestyle, God lets you reap what you have sown. Let's see, verse 8. The fir trees rejoice, and the cedar trees are saying, since you are laid down, no fellow or no woodsman has come up against us. Okay? So this is talking about true peace. All right? <laughs> and I, I think the trees are figurative here, but you know, it could also be, you know, nobody's having to chop down the trees. <laughs> I, I, think it's more, I think it's more figurative here. Uh, but, uh, and he says, hell from beneath is moved for you to meet you at your coming. It stirs up the dead in you and the chief ones of the earth and have raised up their thrones all the kings of the nations. Jesus comes and hell itself is stirred because Jesus came. When Jesus came, think about this. Realize that there was a resurrection when Jesus died. It said that these, the dead, righteous dead, walked the streets of Jerusalem. All right? Now, I don't know if they had to redial when Jesus was resurrected, they were resurrected with him, because it doesn't tell us anything other than they walked, they walked in the streets. There was a resurrection. Jesus took death captive and said, I'm in control. Yeah. We've got to think about this. God is in control. To me, that's the greatest blessing and, and rest that I can have is that God is in control. Nothing happens in this world that God does not know about and has not got a plan for. Now, sometimes we can't understand what that plan is. Sometimes it doesn't make any sense to us until later on. But he is in control. Nothing surprises God. You'll never hear God say, I didn't know that was going to happen. Okay, that's not in his vocabulary. He knows everything. When he created Adam and Eve and they sinned, it was not a shock to God that they sinned. Matter of fact, he had a plan. He offered the sacrifice of the animal and clothed them with skins by shedding the blood of the innocent animal, showing them how to have forgiveness of their sins. And that has gone forward ever since. God knew what was going to happen and had a plan. God always understands, and this is something we need to really keep in our minds, God has a plan. If we understand God has a plan and that it's going to be a good plan, that can give us a lot of peace. When things are going, going crazy, my favorite thing to say is, God, I don't understand any of this, but you know what's going to happen. And you have said it's going to be for good. And again, remember, I've, I keep saying, it doesn't say it's going to be for our good. It just says it's going to be for good. And it may mean that we suffer greatly so that somebody else comes to Christ. And that happens over and over again. When you read some of the, you read through Fox's Book of Martyrs about the martyrs, you read through people who have suffered, and they go, I suffered and I was firm with God, and these people came to God because of my trust in him. That's quite a testimony. Now, now was that suffering good for that person? You know, you're going to get blessed in the long run in heaven, but it wasn't good to go through. But 
somebody came to Christ. And you know, this is the question. What are we willing to go through if somebody else will come to Christ? If, if a brother or sister will be strengthened by what I go through, am I willing to go through hell so that they can be encouraged, so that they can, can be following God in a stronger place? Hopefully the answer is yes. Unfortunately for most of us, the answer is no, God, I don't want to go through these trials and this, these hardships. And God is saying, well, I want you to <laughs> because I've got somebody's soul that's at stake. And we need to really understand God has a plan, and his plan is to bring as many into fellowship with the Son as possible. And that might mean putting us through the ringer. It might mean putting us through a lot of headaches and hassles so that somebody else can see God in action and see our faithfulness. You know, this is something I, I love about reading these biographies about people who have suffered. I like reading the Fox's Book of Martyrs because they give you so many examples of somebody who was faithful to God and drawing others to them because they saw something worth dying for or something worth going through pain for. In our world, there's a lot of people who don't think there's anything worth going through pain. Number one, that's what we're taught. You know, you should be happy. Happy, wealthy, and wise. You know, just, you know, and if anything's wrong, there's something wrong with you, and it's not, it's not God's plan. It's not the way the world's supposed to work. It's not where God promises us. So we want to be careful. Are we looking at him and saying, God, I've got the, I, I want to go through whatever it is you want me to go through. Now, does that mean God's going to always put us through hard times? No, he gives us easy times as well and blessed times. Now, those blessed times may not be what we think they're going to be either. Just being able to rest. Sometimes we rest and, and just say, God, you're going to take the beating of this storm, and I'm just going to be here. And that's one of the things that he says here, that hell is moved. It's been trembling. It's quaking. It stirs up the dead. The chief are, the chief are stir, stirred up. And also speak and say to them, are you become weak as we? Are you become like unto us? And this I think they're talking about Lucifer because we're getting ready to go. And, you know, are you made weak? Are you, are you just like us? Your pomp is brought down to the grave. The noise of your viols, viols or instruments uh, is brought down. The worm is spread under you and the worm covers you. And this talks about one of two things, either just the decay of the body of the corpse, you know, and corpses will get worms. Uh, and the other thing that worms represent is conscience. In hell, it says that the worm never ceases to turn or it keeps bringing up. You are here because you chose to be here, basically. Uh, and you've got to understand, when somebody is sent to hell, they're getting what they wanted. They rejected Jesus so many times. And when they stand at the white throne judgment, God is going to say, well, here's all the times you rejected me, and now you get what you wanted, and they're going to remember that rejection for the rest of eternity. They're going to know that they're where they are by their choice. And that's pretty tough. You know, every single person who's alive has had the opportunity to accept Jesus Christ or turn to God. All right, verse 12. Now we see some lessons directly from Satan. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground that, which did weaken the nations? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation on the sides of the north. I will 
ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will be like unto the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. All right, picture of Satan. Satan starts out with the name Lucifer. He is, from everything we know, the chief angel. Okay, he was the chief angel of all the angels. He was the one in charge of everything in heaven, right under God. And that wasn't good enough for him. He did not want to be just under God. He didn't want to be the top. Part of it might have been the creation of man because man was going to be placed above angels. He might not have liked that. We don't know exactly when he fell. Was it after man was created or just before man was created? I tend to think it was just before, but any, we don't know. But what is his accusation? It says, you are cut down to the ground which weaken the nations. Okay, Satan has weakened nations. He's had dominion of this world for a long time, and Jesus took him out at the cross. He paid the penalty for death. He destroyed death. And it says, you know, you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. Okay? And this ascend literally means to climb up to the top. Okay? He had access to the throne of, throne of God. He, but he wanted to get even higher than what he had access to. He goes, I will ascend. He goes, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. He goes, so apparently he had a throne. Some, some form of throne, throne, a subservient throne to God. But he says, I'm going to rise to my throne above everybody else, all the stars of heaven. All right? And, that put, and what he's saying is, I want to be equal to God. Okay? A lot of people say that what Satan did was say, I want to be greater than God. Or, but what he says in here is that he wanted to be like God. He was at least wise enough to know that he couldn't be greater than God. But he wanted to be like God. He wanted to be equal to God uh, as a created being. And it says, I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. Now, that may not mean much to you, but the mount of the congregation is Jerusalem. The sides of the north is the temple. He says, I will sit in the temple. I will sit in Jerusalem. In other words, I'm going to sit in God's city. I'm going to sit in his temple looking for worship. He wanted to be worshipped. He wanted to be like God and, and get that worship. So when you see this idea that in the mount of the congregation, the sides of the north, that's all references to Jerusalem and the, tavern and the temple. And then he goes on, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. These are the five I wills of Satan when you hear that referred to. And this is... I'm tired of my position. I'm going to be equal. I want to be equal to God. Man's problem is that we get tired of the position God puts us in, and we want to be more important or higher than we are, and usually we want to ascend to be like God. And how does that work in our day and age? We've got something that, I, that we've talked about called designer religion. Okay, And that's where you go out and you say, I like this part of Christianity, I like this part of Buddhism, I like this part of Hinduism, and you make your own religion up by all the best parts, quote unquote, of other religions. So what are you doing? You're saying, I'm God. I get to decide what's right and wrong. I get to decide what God is and who God is and how he's worshipped. And because I get to decide that, therefore, I'm God. And I've told you all, I have more respect for the person who's following the wrong religion 
completely, wholeheartedly, because they're putting their whole trust and faith in that religion than they do these people who say, I'm just going to make a mismatch of all of them and, and figure out what I want to do. Because at least you're saying, I'm going to go good, bad, or ugly. I'm going to go with this. Now they're wrong, and I'm going to try to get them to come to God because I want them to be fulfilled. But like I said, I have more respect. And they say, well, I'm going to follow Hinduism no matter what, or I'm going to follow Buddhism no matter what, or you know, the Muslim faith no matter what. I'm going, OK, at least this person is honest. They're not trying to be God. They're following the wrong God, all right? But you know, to mix it up, and here Satan said, I'm going to be like God. And all these religions are based upon getting him worshipped. And then we ought to understand, if you do a study of religions, and I don't necessarily re, you know, encourage that, but when you look at the religions, when they say that all religions are alike, they're right in one aspect. They're all about trying to please a deity. Now the how-to and everything and who you're trying to do is totally different. All the religions are totally different, so be careful. All right? You, you've got all kinds of different things. The Muslims say that, the, that Jesus never died on the cross and therefore never resurrected. Okay, and that's why he was seen, because he never died on the cross. Judas Iscariot was, paid, was put on the cross and made to look like Jesus, according to them. Muslims. <laughs> Uh, because Jesus was a good prophet, and God would never punish a good prophet like that. Uh, you know, so they, didn't, they deny that he even died. Okay? Others say that he was just a good man, but he can't be a good man because he claimed that he was God and he accepted worship, so he cannot be a good man. And he can't be a good teacher all right, because he, he said and accepted the worship. And people say, well, he never claimed to be God. Well, when he said, before Abraham was, I am... The Jews knew that he claimed to be God. Because what was their reaction? They picked up rocks to stone him for blasphemy. Because they understood that he just claimed to be God because he said before Abraham was, you know, 3,000 years earlier than what he was, I am. And so he was going, I, I'm in existence. And he used a term that they knew what he meant. And they picked up the rocks to stone him. Jesus claimed to be God. So he either is or he isn't. He can't be a good teacher and claim to be God. He can't be a good teacher. And he, so that leaves us with two choices. He was a crazy person who just thought he was God, but he didn't speak and act like somebody who was crazy, or he was God. Those are your three choices. You know, he is who he says he was. He was a total, absolute liar, or he was a lunatic. And I think he was Lord. I think the Bible very clearly teaches that he's Lord. His actions show that he is Lord. And I'm going to opt that he's Lord, because he didn't act like a lunatic, and he didn't... And then, he didn't, wasn't one who lied as far as we can tell. So we want to be able to look at this. And Satan says, I am going to be like God. I want worship. And all these false religions that are out there bring worship to him. All right? Most of, them, most of the religions are based in good works. If you do enough good things, you will please the deity. Now some of them are through reincarnation. You get to keep living and trying again and again and again and again and again and again and go up and down the chain depending on how you live which has got to be sad you know, because you're, there's no hope in that because you're never going to be perfect, you're never going to be good enough or we have other religions that just say well you got, your good's got to outweigh your bad and that's got to be sad because you ask them okay how much good do you have to do for each bad item? Nobody knows. So you get to go through your whole life never knowing whether you're going to go to heaven or hell 
because you don't know if you've been good enough. Christianity says real quickly, you're not good enough. You are a sinner, you deserve hell. Jesus paid your price. Accept him as your Lord and Savior. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, ultimately, but they don't technically worship Buddha. They they worship they worship nothing. Actually, that's their goal. I mean, it's you, you live your life to a point where you can imagine a perfect world. So, yeah, uh, but all of these ultimately, because you're not worshiping God, you're in bottom line worshiping Satan. He's getting what he wants to a degree. He's not equal to God, but he's getting worship. But they think it's a God. They think it's a God. They think they're worshiping a God. In theory, anyway, they do. Uh, and we've seen all through the Old Testament all these different gods that the people worshiped. And so Satan is getting, in theory, what he wants. Now, will they know that they're worshiping Satan? No. Uh, most witches and and. Wicca and everything that get into the spirit world do not realize that they're ultimately worshiping Satan. Now, do they believe in Satan? Some do, some don't. Depends. Not all religions do. Um, So you want to be careful with all of that because you don't know. But we do know that they believe that there's something good that you're trying to obtain unto. And usually that there's some evil. Now, they may not have a personal evil. they sometimes just good and bad are forces that battle each other. So we want to be careful about all of this. But this here we see Satan is created. He's a created being. So never get this idea that Satan is God's opposite. He's a fallen angel. He's a fallen angel. He's created. He is not as strong as God. He's not the opposite of God. He is an enemy of God. But he is, not the, he is not the opposite. He is not omnipresent. He is not omniscient. He is not uh, omnipotent. Uh, he's, you know, he's got limitations of any created being. And plus, doesn't he have to ask God? And he's got to ask God for permission to do things, according to Job. According to Job, he has to ask permission before he can do anything. So, again, God's in charge. Yes. Satan does not have the freedom that a lot of people think he does. He is not God's equal. He is not as strong as God, and God is suffering all through, all through this time trying to control him. He is fully under control. God gives him a lot of freedom. A lot more freedom than I think I would give him, but God has a reason for giving him this much freedom. Well, we know that when the millennial kingdom starts, he's cast into hell. He's bound for a thousand years, and then at the white throne judgment, he is going to be forced to bow down to God okay, and say that he's God. Yes. So he will be forced to confess God is God and that, you know, he won't want to do it. He'll be forced to, but he will say these words. He is a created being under the authority of God that God controls. And we've got to understand this because there's so many people that think he is so powerful that we can't, you know, no. We have Jesus Christ living in us. We have God living in us. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. Greater is he that lives in me than he that is in the world. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And we just need to take rest in that. All right? And the more we rest in that, the easier life gets. Because when we're resting in God, 
He's the one that takes the storm. He's the one that takes the battering. We've talked about this. If you're in, out where these hurricanes are striking in Louisiana and those places, if you're in a building like ours that is built out of concrete blocks with, with uh, rebarb and everything in it, you're pretty safe in the middle of the hurricane. All right? It takes a lot of wind to knock down cinder blocks. But if you're out there in a lean-to or a pup tent in, in the middle of the hurricane, you're in a lot of danger and a lot of trouble. Okay? <laughs> you're probably, you're, you're, you're going to be exposed very quickly to the elements, if not going home. Uh, it's a very bad place to be. You might survive, you know, if you stay on the ground and, and everything, but you're going to get wet, you're going to get beat, you're going to get hurt. In our lifetime, God is saying, stay in me. Hide in me. The times we really get in trouble is when we get outside of God and kind of go, God, I got this one. I can take this battle. And even though Satan's not an equal to God, he's been around a long time. He is very powerful, and he can hurt humans severely. And uh, so we want to be very careful. If I just stay hidden in God, I weather the storm with no problem. If I get out there and say, God, I can do this, and I get out in the storm, I'm going to get beat up. And so we want to be very careful about this. Stay hidden in Christ. Rest in him. And then when you learn to rest within, in him, you'll probably get the blessings that come along behind, besides that. You know, when God knows he can trust us, he will bless us. I'm going to tell you right now, most Christians do not have great wealth because God knows he can't trust them with great wealth. They'd have the mansion up on the hill and the, and the five or six cars that they don't need and the servants and all the stuff that they'll never use. And then, because they have so much, stop serving God. And he knows that the majority of us will do that. So he says, no, you don't get this. I'm not giving you these blessings when, you can't, when you're not going to live them. Now, we've seen people who have given God glory and, and great blessings, and they still ended up with million, as millionaires. Some people who've given God 90% and they kept 10% and were still millionaires. I can't imagine that. That means they made a lot of money coming through their pockets. But God knew that he, they could be trusted. And here we see Satan. And then we look down in verse 15. Yet you shall be brought down to hell in the sides of the pits. Satan, you wanted to exalt yourself. You wanted to climb up to the heights of heaven. We're going to make you down to the lowest parts of the pit of hell. Then verse 16 is very interesting. And they that see him shall narrowly look upon you and consider you, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble and did shake the kingdoms, that made the world as a wilderness to destroy the cities thereof, that opened not the house of the prisoners? All the kings of the nations, even all them lie in glory, everyone in his own place. But you are cast out of your grave like an abominable branch, and as a raiment, of those that were slain thrust through with a sword that go down to the stones of the pit as the carcass trodden underfoot. You shall not be joined with them in burial because you have destroyed your land and slain your people. The seed of evildoers shall never be renowned. Okay, so here we get the picture of Satan revealed to people. Okay, right now people look at Satan and go, oh, he's so powerful, he's so strong, he's so, so mighty. This gives a whole different picture. When he stands before God in judgment, it says the people will look, will, shall narrowly look or stare and gaze at him. They'll be amazed. And their question will be, 
is this the one that, that caused this much trouble? Or this is the one that made everybody tremble? It makes me wonder what Satan looks like, but when you see him stripped bare of all of his pretending, he's going to be, that would almost be it. He's a coward, he's a wimp, he's a weakling. When he's, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's still an angel. Don't take that too literally. But they're going to see him and say, is this the one? You know, this is what, this is what, it can almost picture if you watch the Wizard of Oz and, and Dorothy and them are in, there, in that cabinet and, and they see the, you know, the Toto pulls open the curtain you know, and all of a sudden they see him for the charlatan that he is. You know, starts out with his great power and then they see a weak, wimpy, powerless person. That's the picture here of Satan. Everybody sees him with his shalad, his, his actor's face and everything on, and then when they stand before God, they look at him and say, this? This is who caused all this trouble? You know, you know he's a flim-flam man, you know, <laughs> uh, making things look really great, and then he's going to say, how did we fall? How did we fall for this? But you know, it's usually very true though that when we fall for something we usually fall for something that is an apparent issue and not real whether it's some sin i want to get fame i want to get rich and famous and have everything i want then everybody will like me and then i get it and i find out i can't trust anybody because i don't know if they like me for me or my rich and my riches and fame i'm not happy with what i've got and this is what happens over and over again in our world people get what they think they want because of the facade that it puts out get there and say, oh, it really wasn't all I thought it was. It, it's, it's miserable. It's not even fun. I don't, I don't like it. And here we see Satan being stripped bare before the people and said, you know, hey, people looking at him, that, that's what we were afraid of? Not just Christians, apparently. It's, it's apparent that he's being stripped bare before all. And I think this is the white throne of judgment that he's standing at. Even the ones following him, like, that's who we've been following? That? that? Yeah. Uh, and it says, the world was made a wilderness and destroyed. The cities thereof were open, not to the house of the prison. And this is what Satan does. He destroys. He tries to take prisoners, and he does not want to release the prisoners. And this is what we see. When we go out and we witness to people... If you remember when we did the Truth Project, Dale Tackett talked about the lost being POWs. They're prisoners of Satan. They're prisoners of their sin. He does not want to let them go, but God is more powerful. And this is what he's saying. He destroys. Satan's whole goal is to destroy, which is why I keep teaching us Satan has to ask for permission to do anything. Even to hurt the lost world, he has to ask for permission. Now, God gives him great latitude with the lost world, but he doesn't give him everything because otherwise he'd destroy and kill them. The easiest way to make sure they don't get saved is to kill them before they have a chance to make a decision for Christ. So God puts limits on Satan. Satan is a, is a dog on a leash or a lion on a leash, depending on how you want to look at it. He can only go as far as God lets him, period. He's not all-powerful. He is not the opponent of God that can do what he wants. God has him on a leash. God is, God is way, way up there, and Satan is just above, a good bit above man, but way below God still. 
He is on a leash. He is in position where he cannot do what needs to be done or what he wants to do. And it says, all the kings of the earth, even all them that lie in, in glory, everyone on his own house, you know, are going to see him. <laughs> They're gonna, everybody who's renowned is going to see him. And then it says, but you are cast out of your grave like an abomin abominable branch as a raiment of those that are slain thrust through the sword to go down to the stones of the pit as a carcass trodden under the, the feet. Satan. Going to be an abominable thing. He doesn't even get a grave. Okay, he's going to be cast into hell for, for a thousand years and then he's going to be cast into the lake of fire for eternity. He's had a couple thousand years to try to cause problems on the, on the earth. But it says, and then you see this very graphic. He's, he's cast out... And then it's like a raiment of one who's slain thrust through with a sword. All right? We can picture somebody being shot, how much blood and everything would be pouring out on the garment. And it says this body is just thrown into a pit, not even buried, just thrown into a pit to not be buried. And this happens frequently in large-scale wars. They just throw everything into a pit, maybe cover it if they want, uh, but it's, you know, sometimes burn it. You know, sometimes burn them, sometimes bury it, depending on how many. But he says, this is, this is what's going on. You, you'll be trodden under, underfoot. You know, again, keep in mind, even though Satan has great power, great strength, don't, don't take him too lightly as a human being, but greater is he that is in us. He cannot do anything to us. Satan cannot possess a Christian. Why can't he possess a Christian? Because Christ lives in us. Okay, so he cannot possess a Christian. He can make life miserable for us. He can sit on our shoulder and whisper in our ear all day long. But he cannot possess us. And no other demon can either, for that matter. So keep in mind, his power is limited. Do not ever believe that his power is, is omnipotent. He is not God. God holds him fully in control. And it says, You shall not be joined in them with burial, because you have destroyed the land and slain the evil. The seed of the evildoers shall never be renowned or proclaimed. Okay? And think about this. Some people we kind of know for their infamy, but, you know, we don't look at them as good role models. Okay? We think of somebody as Hitler and say, okay, he was really bad. I don't want to be in any way, shape, or form like Hitler. I don't want to be like Stalin. I don't want to be like Mao Zedong. I don't want to be like all these people who were evil. But we can think about people that are good, righteous followers of God and say, I'd like to be like that person. I want to lift them up. I want to be, I want to be a George Mueller. I want to be a, a Corey Ten Boom. I want to be uh, Johnny Erickson Tata. I want to be these people, you know, not necessarily what they went through, but their faithfulness for God. And we see this whole process of God being exalted, being lifted up. And we want to be able to say, you know, with all of this, and verse 21 says, prepare slaughter for his children, for the iniquity of their fathers that do not rise, nor possess the land, nor fill the face of the earth with cities. So the judgment will come upon the evil. And this is what I say so many times. There is a consequence for sin. Sin always has consequences. And evil will always pay in the long run. Always. And we want to keep that in mind. It's not something that will ever be honest. It may appear that, that sin is being rewarded. It may look like somebody is living happy, happy in their sin. But, you know, we find out the more we look at their life, the more they're not happy. 
We, we can look at this, you know, magazines are full of all the stories of the, the stars and the, uh, the, the actors and the actresses and the singers and the sports players that get famous. And you would go, oh, they got everything. They got fame, they got money, they've got all this stuff. And then we find out that they're drunk and alcoholic and committing suicide because they find out that what they thought was gonna make them happy didn't. And if you look at their life long enough, the guy who gets all the money, who's multimillionaire, usually isn't all that happy. Money will not make them happy. You cannot buy happiness, okay? This is what Solomon tells us. He goes, I went out and I tried to buy everything I wanted. I did buildings, I, I did the alcohol scene, I did the drug scene, I did, you know, I had all the women I wanted. Nothing made me happy without God. And that's what Ecclesiastes is all about. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, was what he said. Without God, everything is vain and will not satisfy, will not fill, because we all have a place in our life that only God can fill. It's an infinite-sized hole that only an infinite God can fill. No matter how much of anything else we get, it won't fill the infinite, because infinite has no beginning or end, and only God is infinite to fill that need in our heart. And we're going to end here and close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to look at who you are, that you are sovereign, you are the ruler of this world, and you are the one that cares for us. We ask that you keep us in that. Keep us always remembering that you have good plans for us and that you are good. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.